All right, good morning, Rio Vista. My name is Sam Kastensmet, and I'm the pastor of education here at Rio Vista Church, and I wasn't supposed to be on stage this morning. Uh, last night, or yesterday, I got a, f- a text message from Tom saying, hey, I think my voice is starting to give way, but I'm going to try some home remedies, and we'll get this figured out. And so I started looking through some stuff, and then this morning, he let me know that his voice, which if you talk with him, <laughs> is... It's not ready for preaching. And so this is the first time in 20 years of being a pastor where he's anticipated preaching but not been able to. And so after a couple of hours notice and a couple of emodium, I stand before you. <clears throat> now, this is a great passage. The good news is, is God's word here is absolutely amazing. And so this story that we're walking through today in 2 Kings chapter 3 is really wonderful. So it's the first chapter in our story where we're after Elijah, and now his apprentice, Elisha, is standing on his own. And we're introduced to him in this story in a context where the nation is falling apart still. And let me just give you some background of like 150 years Up until this story, you had King David, who was this awesome king, and he led the nation in size and power and wealth, and his heart was totally devoted to the Lord. I mean, this guy could worship the Lord with everything he had. And then he died, and his son Solomon came along, and he was unbelievably wise at administrating everything. But the deal with Solomon is while his heart was for these things, the fringes of worship began to fall apart. He began to erect shrines to allow for the worship of these other gods, including one of the gods that we'll see is worshipped in today's passage, the god Shemash of the Moabites. And you worship this god by sacrificing your children in the fires. And so after Solomon, the nation comes to his son Rehoboam and says, we feel totally like we're not even acknowledged. The 10 northern tribes are like, are you going to let us play a part in this kingdom? If not, we're out. And Rehoboam is this tyrant and he's like, you will serve me or I will whip you. And so the 10 northern tribes leave. And they decide, hey, we'll keep Yahweh around. We'll keep the God of Israel around. But we're going to infuse all the worship of all these other gods, Baal and Asherah and all these other gods. And they have wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Ahab, who we just got to experience in the life of Elijah, wicked king. His son, a wicked king. Now his other son, and this today's passage is also a wicked king. And everything's beginning to unravel. This once great kingdom unified under David is beginning to unravel. And we're introduced today to one of the territories that was under Israel, the northern kingdom's control. Moab says, Ahab's dead. We see Israel falling apart. We're done with you. And they rebel. Archaeology, cool things. They found something called the Misha stone, which is the name of this king of Moab. And on this stone, you get the idea that they don't just say, hey, we're done paying taxes. They want the throne. Misha wants the throne. He wants to overthrow Israel. And so now, the northern king, Ahab's son, Jehoram, says, I got some trouble on my hands. I got to go put this rebellion down. And so what does he do? He goes to the southern king, the king who reigns in Jerusalem, 
whose name is Jehoshaphat. That's a fun name to say. It's almost impossible to say it without saying jumping Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat, and he's like, hey, are, are you up for going in on this together? Can we partner our armies together and go after him? And Jehoshaphat's like, oh, I'm in. Like, I'm with you. My armies are your armies. Like, let's go do this together. And oh, by the way, the Edomites are still loyal to me, this other group of people. We'll all three go, and I got a great plan. Oh, this is going to catch the Moabites by surprise. They won't know that we're working together. And so if you look at the nation of Israel, this is a satellite image that I'm about to show you. <clears throat> so Israel is up here to the north. Sorry for the people on camera. Israel's up here on the north. Judah is down here on the south. The Edomites are down here and Moab is over here. Okay. And so they're thinking if Israel's coming against me, they're going to come from the north. But Jehoshaphat and Jehoram have this great idea. If we go down around the southern edge of the Dead Sea and come up from the south, we'll surprise them. All their armies are going to be anticipating us in the north. Let's go do this. We'll have the military advantage. This is going to be great. And so we pick up in verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they made a circuitous march of seven days, that's not an accidental line, There was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And now you've got to understand how dire the situation has become. All of the armies are now way south. Go back to that image, if you would. This, look how white it gets. You know why it's white on the map? It's desert. When we were traveling in Israel back in 2010, I went on a trip with Tom and some of you here. This is what it looks like taking a picture of that land. You do not want to be out here with no water. You see the trees that are growing? That's what are called wadis. And so when it does rain, on the rare occasion that water does come into this land, it races down these hills because there's no trees, there's no grass to absorb the water. So it races down and goes in these little basins called wadis that are totally dried up. But for the brief little bit that they get water, those acacia trees will grow there. But there's no water. You're not digging it up. There's no water, and here's the deal. They've been traveling for how many days? Seven days, which means this. If you've been days without water, on a day, seven days journey down into this territory, if you turn back, are you going to make it? You got days again, journey without water, you're done. All of your people are utterly weak. I watched the show alone where they put people out into the wilderness. If you don't have water like you watch them, they're done. There's no energy. There's no ability. So the option is, do I turn back in which I'm probably going to die? Or do I press into this battle with an army that's utterly weak and dehydrated? They can't do it anymore. And face this foe in the hopes that we plunder their water and live. And so... The king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. Let me translate. I knew if I followed this that your God would bring ruin on me. He's not to be trusted. Every time I have anything to do with him, things blow up in my face. We should never seek him out. And Jehoshaphat, who's a righteous king of Judah, what does he say? Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Do you get the difference of these two men? When crisis hits, 
When it's, I don't know how I'm going to fare. I don't know how I'm going to walk through this. The wicked, faithless king points a finger at God and wants to run away. While the righteous king says, we're in crisis. We need to seek him with everything we got. Is there a prophet around? What do you do when crisis hits? Do you point fingers and run away or do you draw near? Do you trust the Lord and what he has in store for you? Like Jehoshaphat and this moment. Then one of the king of Israel's servants said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here. He who poured water on the hands of Elijah. In other words, Elijah's servant who's supposed to be taking up his role as the lead prophet. He's here. Now we don't know if he's like in the army, if he's with them, but it's like he's there. And Jehoshaphat said, oh, the Lord of the word, the word of the Lord is with him. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Eden, Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, look at the boldness here. I just, I love Elisha. What do I have to do with you? He's looking at this wicked guy that allows all this wild worship, this wickedness to go on in his kingdom. And here's this prophet looking him in the face saying, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. You remember back when you worshiped Baal and when you chased after Asherah and you're still not chasing after the Lord. How did that work out for you? How did that work out for your dad and your mom and your brother? How much is it going to take for you to learn, in other words? He says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the one who's faithful, I would neither look at you nor see you right now. And then he says this, but now bring me a musician. And I want to stop there for a moment because the text is doing something that if you race through this, if you read through this without pausing to ask questions of the text, you'll miss it. Elisha in this story is being compared to somebody, a great figure from centuries earlier in the history of Israel. You might remember him. His name is Joshua. You remember the prophet Moses? He was the great prophet. He led the people out of Israel. He was the the mightiest prophet in the history of Israel. And when his office was over, when Moses died, who became his replacement? Joshua. So can you think of another prophet that went on to Mount Sinai and spoke with God? Oh yeah, Elijah did. Who's his replacement? Elisha. You have... Moses, who goes to the Red Sea and parts the waters, and to show Joshua that he is with him as he was with Moses, when Joshua comes to the Jordan River to lead the people into the promised land, he rolls up his cloak like Elijah did, and he strikes the water, and guess what happens? The waters part. Gee, he did that with Joshua. Then Joshua goes forward, and he conquers Jericho. Where is Elisha's first miracle after parting the Jordan? Gee, we read about that last week. It's in the city of Jericho. And then he goes to Bethel where the second battle against Ai happened, the twin city. It's telling you, Elisha is the replacement for the great prophet. He is like Joshua. And so when we read earlier that they had a circuitous march for seven days in your brain, wait a minute, I know another group that marched for seven days. Does this sound familiar to you? When Joshua was called to go and battle against Jericho, God gives this wild battle strategy. And what does he say? 
You will march around this city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times. And then the priests that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant around the city, eventually they're going to take their trumpets and they're going to give a blast of worship. And all the people are going to shout with a great shout, which is not just random ah shouting. The Hebrew word shout means sing. If you've been around Christian music long enough, you remember songs like shout to the Lord. Shout to the north. You worship. And when God takes them to Jericho, he's saying, you've got an enemy that's impossible to defeat. You want to know how you're going to get victory? It's not going to be because you're a clever army. It's not because you've got superior weapons. It's going to be because you shout to me. You come to me with all the worship you've got and watch me win the battle. And so now what happens? (laughs) Here they are. Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and the king of Edom and they're stuck without water on the verge of death and the prophet comes forward and what does he say? Bring me a musician. Now how cool is that? And it's going to be the exposure to this musician that's going to win the battle. But I want to stop there because this isn't isolated. The Bible teaches us this again and again. It's not just Joshua and the Israelites who cry out and shout in praise of God and get victory at Jericho. In the book of Judges, do you remember the story of Gideon? Gideon comes along with 300 men going up against mighty armies that are unified, the Midianites and all these other nations. And what does God tell them to do? I want you to surround the valley on the mountaintops, blow the trumpets, and give a great shout for the Lord and for Gideon with everything you've got. And the armies go into confusion, and they slaughter one another. And Israel is given the victory. You fast forward to the book of Revelation, and I love this. There's story after story like this, by the way. Jehoshaphat will fight another battle in which praise brings victory. He's going to learn that lesson here. And the next time when the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites have turned and they come against him, what does he do? Oh, we got to do a battle strategy and put our army together and get the bet. No, he goes out with his priests and they praise God. And God delivers them a victory. My favorite And guys, this is one that we get to participate in. In the book of Revelation, when everything is unraveling and you come to the end of that story and the world is falling into deep wickedness and the nations are just devouring evil. When the Lord comes back at the triumphant moment that we should all be looking for, listen to this, Revelation 19. And after this, all the chaos that's coming at the end, right? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory belong to our God. And so the praise team in heaven is going full steam. Oh, praising God with everything we got as loud as we can shout. And once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her, Babylon, this wicked city of the world, is going up forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and the four living creatures bow down, and they worship God, and they're shouting, Amen, Hallelujah. And then from the throne, so guess who's saying this? 
praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then just imagine it, man. This is the best worship concert we'll ever experience. It's coming. Then I heard what seemed like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. And do you know what happens next? And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And with righteousness he doth judge and make war. The scriptures are teaching us that the victory of God's people is founded upon the praise of God's people. What do you need victory in? What part of your life are you looking at thinking, this is doomed? Shout. Shout and watch what he will do. I remember... Eight years ago, I got a phone call while I was at work teaching at Westminster Academy, and it's my brother on the phone, and he says, hey, are you, are you sitting down? And I said, no. And he says, well, sit down. And I sat down, and he said, hey, I just want you to know that mom just had a severe heart attack. She's at the hospital. She's in the ICU or emergency room at that point. Prognosis is poor. She's not expected to make it. If you want to say your goodbyes, you better get up there two hours north of here. I ran next door, yelled into the classroom, cover my class, got in my car, and was doing unlawful things on 95 on the way there. I could barely see. My eyes were filled with tears. I could barely see. Shouldn't have been driving. And in the middle of that, worship started playing in my car. And in that moment, I had this conversation with God, like, I don't know what you have in store for my mom. You know how much I love her. You know how much it would mean for me to be able to say goodbye to her. But God, you are so good. You are the only one who loves her more than her family, and we trust you with her. And in that car, I just started praising God in the middle of the grief and the pain, and it was one of the sweetest, most wonderful moments of worship I've ever had in my life. Because I recognized who holds her future. And in that, I could give thanks that he would lay down his life for hers, that he would welcome her with open arms, that she would be free of all the things that she was suffering. And that is worthy of praise. And peace overwhelmed me. And she recovered. And then got lung cancer and recovered. And now it's out of remission and she's got it again. And you know what? My God is good. Her future is awesome. And I will worship him in the midst of all that. And so Elisha does what's really brilliant. Bring me the musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry steam bed full of pools. And I'm taking issue with the ESV here. Go to the other translations. It's literally, he's instructing the people, go dig ditches for the water. He's not saying, I'm going to do it. He's, it's an instruction, go dig ditches. Why? For thus says the Lord, you will not see wind 
You will not see rain, but that wadi that we saw in the desert is going to be filled with water so that you shall drink, you and your livestock, all your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city shall and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And the next morning, at about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water, this flash flood from nowhere, came from the direction of east, coming from the south, which is weird, till the country was filled with water. So this is what faith does. God doesn't just say, okay, sit back. I got this, though he's got this. He says, dig ditches. What does that mean? That means in anticipation by faith of what God's going to do. I want you to go and dig ditches and pools that come off of the wadi so that it's not just a flash flood that's gone like that. Dig those ditches so that the water is caught. So how do you, how does that apply to you? Where are you digging ditches? It's, it's like this. When you come to a situation in your life and you're thinking, man, my marriage is so far gone. I don't see any hope. I don't see any reason to break out the shovel and dig a ditch. I don't see how God's going to bring water or catch water or bring salvation to this moment. God is telling you, trust me, get digging. Go to counseling. Invest into your wife. Invest into your husband. Trust me to bring about a resurrection. Is it your job? Is it your emotion? Is it your walk with the Lord? Don't just sit there. Trust God's promise. The water is coming. Get digging. That shows your faith that he is a good God who is a God of resurrection, who raises up from death new life. Trust that the waters are coming. Because in that moment, they really just have three options. I can, I can believe and start digging. I can run on my own strength or I can fight in my own strength. I promise you the last two options are no good. You do things in your own strength and you will wither. The things in your life will wither. Trust in the Lord's promise. Let that be your peace. He is good. And so it says, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come to fight against them, and so you remember Jehoshaphat and Joram's, their plan is, well, sneak up. Well, they've run into such a mess that now the Moabites are like, oh, they're down there. They go to the front, no advantage at all. No advantage at all. And so they're all... They're putting on armor, everyone youngest, oldest. They're called out and drawn up to the border. And now get this. Remember, the water has come and filled all the pools, all the ditches. And Israel, (laughs) and this, I'm so thirsty. They're out there getting life. God has come through. He has provided the water. And now they're out there drinking up the water. But from a distance, the Moabites are looking. And the sun comes up and the water hits the sunlight hits that water under which is this red clay desert material. And when it shines back into the eyes of Moab, it says, when the sun arose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. Now remember, they didn't see the rain come in. There was no storm. 
So they're not expecting the ground to be wet. So they say, this is blood. The kings, Israel, Judah, and Edom, they've all gone after each other, right? The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. Do you get what really, really cool is happening here? To the Israelites and the people of Judah and the Edomites, God has come through. He has rewarded their faith by giving them more water than they know what to do with. But in the eyes of the enemies, these child-sacrificing, demonic Moabites, awful, awful culture, when they look, get this, they see the camp of their enemy covered in blood. Hmm. And it leads them to folly, right? So it says, when they came to the camp of the Israel, so Moab is like, we're going to spoil, we're going to conquer, we're going to plunder. So they run in. And it says, but when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went, and they overthrew the cities, and they did all the stuff that Elisha described. There is a confidence that when the enemy sees us covered in blood, our camp covered in blood, the folly is they're weak. Let's go after them. But the reality behind the scenes is that we are being nourished by God who's delivering water to us, life-saving water. He's delivering the enemy into our hands. Do you know that first promise that God will crush the head of the serpent isn't just about Jesus? In Romans 16, we're told that God will crush the head of the enemy underneath the foot of his church. Do you believe that? Do you have enmity, as the Bible says, toward the serpent and all his schemes? Do you hate evil? Do you war against it and yourself? Do you want to put it down? And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. They overthrew everybody. So the Moabite king withdraws, and he's in this last stronghold of a city. And all of the armies are coming against him. And in this last-ditch effort, he says, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom. But they could not. Now the crazy part of this passage Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. This is common in the ancient world. Israel stood alone as one of the religions that did not allow child sacrifice. The Ammonites did. Worshipping of Baal was known for it. The Moabites did. And so this guy takes his oldest son and says, Shamash must be angry with us. I'm going to make an offering. And he takes his son out on the wall in front of the full view of everybody who's watching. And he slaughters him, throws him on a funeral pyre, and burns him in front of everybody. And it says, And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. And sorry, but I don't know exactly what that means. There's three options here. 
The first option is that Israel sees how intense the Moabites are, that they're willing to stop at nothing, even murdering their own children, and they're utterly disgusted and appalled by that, and they're gone. Like, we want nothing to do with this. Because it doesn't say whose wrath came upon them. So is it the Moabites' intensity? Is it the Israelites are disgusted and want to spare other children? My own theory is that God is bringing wrath in this moment against his own people. Why? Because going all the way back to the days of Solomon, they endorsed this. Solomon built shrines for this kind of stuff. He didn't engage in it, but he said, it's okay. Now, for a century and a half, they've tolerated Moabites murdering their children. And I think in this moment, God says, I'm appalled. Israel senses that his favor has withdrawn and they leave the battle. So what do we do with this? I'm going to suggest to you that we do know where God's wrath lies today. It's rebellion. It's stored up for all those who spit in his face, who say, this is my world. That's my throne. I'm doing things my way. The wrath of God is stored up for humanity and all the evils and cruelty that we do to one another, all the ways that we rebel and spit in his face. Wrath is being stored up for me, right? Like that was for me. I could lay down things in front of you that would make you think, why is he up there preaching? Things in my past, struggles with pride, arrogance, ways that I blame God and point fingers at God and say, you're not enough to me. Wickedness. The wrath of God is stored up, but here's what's wild. The whole world looks at the wall of the Moabites and sees the king giving up his oldest son who is destined to reign so that he can bring vengeance. Guys, do you understand how beautiful our God is who looks at me, who looks at you and says, you absolutely, according to my justice and holiness, deserve wrath for how you've stood against me, how you've treated your neighbor. You deserve wrath. And what does he do? The son, our savior, steps forward and says, yeah, they deserve wrath. Let it fall on me. Let me quench your wrath. Let me be the one who's utterly defeated upon the cross and the wrath is poured out for all of their sin, which I take to myself. Why? So that you, God, can give them unflinching victory. And now you know what? Like the crazy thing is, God promises us That he's with us when we go to him and we sing like Elisha does and Joshua does and Gideon does and all the saints of heaven do. That when we sing, we have victory regardless of what our circumstances say. There's victory here. There's freedom here. And the wild thing is, is when we come to God in those moments and we are singing with everything we got to this God, you know what he's doing? 
He's singing right back over us. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord delights with singing over you, rejoices with singing. Isaiah says that as a bridegroom rejoices with singing over his bride, so your God sings over you. And how does he do that? At such wild, extravagant love that it requires him to make the most costly investment imaginable to demonstrate his love for you and to secure your presence with him forever because he doesn't just take your sin and pay for it. He clothes you in utterly perfect, radiant righteousness. And that is how he sees you this morning. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you that there is power in our praises, even when our circumstances seem strange, even when we don't know what it is that you have in store, Lord. You call us to praise and you promise us victory. You promise. And so, Lord, I thank you for stories like this. Lord, help us to be wise enough to dig trenches and expectantly waiting for your water to come that we may have life. You are a good, amazing, wonderful God. And we thank you for the chance to sing to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.